Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we're going to be interviewing quite an inspiring entrepreneur, an entrepreneur that not only has been serving our country, the United States, but then also, you know, he's been building this incredible company that I think you're all going to love, you know, building, scaling, financing, going through the ups and downs, you know, how they went through COVID and what they did, you know, to, to really not only survive, but to thrive. But again, you know, you're all going to love this. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Joseph Riley. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate you having me on. So originally from Tennessee, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I grew up on a farm in a little small town in East Tennessee. Didn't want to go to college. Uh, only wound up going to college because... Uh, uh, I was the first business class I ever took was keyboarding, you know, cause I grew up in a town that, you know, we didn't have any Wi-Fi. It sounds almost foreign. Uh, but so my business class was typing and I was failing my typing class. And so my keyboarding teacher said, you know, you're no good at typing, but, uh, if you enter this public speaking competition, you like to talk a lot. I'll give you an A on this test you failed. So I did that and she won. And she said, if you go to regionals, I'll give you an A on the next test, and that sounded pretty easy. So I did that. She said, you go to state, I'll give you an A on the next one for the semester. So I did that. She said, you go to nationals, I'll give you an A for any class you ever take from me. So I did that. And when I was there, I said, you know, I want to be national president of future business leaders of America. And she said, you know, we've never even had a a regional or district officer. So that's that's all right. So uh, I, uh, you know, started running for office, wound up getting elected national president of future business leaders of America and some other groups. And from that, got a scholarship to the University of Virginia, did uh, Army ROTC, uh, wanted to serve our country. Uh, then uh, right out of undergrad, went over to Oxford, did a master's and doctorate in international relations, focused on uh, U.S.-China competition, came back to the Army, was uh, in the infantry, uh, had done some different rotations and, and so forth in different places, and ultimately was on a deployment to Afghanistan. And, and one second, one second there, Joe, because uh, I'm sure the people that are listening would love to hear. How did the, the calling for, for joining the Army come about? You know, is there anyone in your family or growing up, you know, some type of experience that really inspired you to want to, um, to serve the country or how did they come about? So in like in most small towns, everything revolves around sports. And, uh, you know, every little small town sports has their like, you know, patron saint, so to speak. Uh, and ours was a gentleman named Waddy Smith uh, who had served in the Green Berets and uh in vietnam and i was always inspired by his commitment to service uh of continuing to support our local school but then also kind of what i saw on him from his time from when he'd been in the military and so uh that's that's a large reason why i wanted to go in the military and i mean you've you've been there you you were in the military for for serving the country for about seven years uh you reached the captain rank so I'm sure that there's a lot of experiences there. You know, Afghanistan, as you were saying, you were deployed to Ukraine as well. Uh, you've dealt, and, and obviously we're not going to get into it uh, because of some of this, you know, maybe classified and, and, and also, you know, perhaps, you know, experiences there that, 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 that you're not so inclined to touch on. But I guess what kind of, what kind of lessons did you really get from that experience? Because to a certain degree, I find that 
building a company from the ground up is also going into battle. It's also being in battlefield. It's putting fires away. It's putting threats away. It's leadership. It's say. So what, what did you get from, from, the, from the Army experience that you know, perhaps you could apply to business? Yeah. So I'll also frame this in the advice I give veterans who are leaving the service. Uh, so first of all, most people who want to leave the military, they say, oh, I can't wait to go work for a startup because you know, I've spent my time in the military you know, building systems and doing all this. And I say, that's nonsense, right? You didn't build any systems in the military. The military is the most bureaucratized organization <laughs> that there is, and it's got 200 years of people building systems and process for you. So, you know, most, the challenge for most military folks who want to go into entrepreneurship is that they're used to operating within a very structured and kind of rules-based environment, right? Where, you know, there's a rank structure, there's an order, there's, you know, down to the way orders processes are produced. It's all the same. Uh, and then the second thing is they've never had internalized labor costs, right? So when military folks, you know, see a problem, their inclination is to think I need people instead of I need a better process. But on the flip side, to your point, what is so important as an entrepreneur is being willing to face down a really difficult circumstance and just say, you know, failure is not an option. I can't quit. Uh, and that is what, in my experience, military folks do a really good job of, because when you're, uh, you know, when you're on the Afghanistan border with another country and you're taking, uh, you're taking a lot of fire, and there's a lot of cloud cover and there's more folks on the other side than you anticipated when you showed up and you can't get medevac out and you can't get the, you know, gunships in that you were anticipating, you know, you, you got to figure out something to make it work because no one's coming to help you. And that's kind of what it's like being an entrepreneur. And, you know, this reminds me a little bit to the book Extreme Ownership from uh, Jocko Willink. You know, it's a fantastic book where, you know, he put some stories there too and how you, you could apply them also to entrepreneurship. I guess, you know, leadership is also a key one and you guys have been growing the team and we'll talk about what you guys are up to in just a little bit, but leadership is a really big one. So can you give us, you know, perhaps a crazy adrenaline-filled story that, you know, you are comfortable sharing where leadership was present and where you got super inspired by? When, when I came out of, uh, we'll, we'll do a non-combat one. When I, when I came out of uh, the army, uh, the Army actually tried to kick me out because I was on this completely different track. I'd gone to Oxford. I hadn't done the normal things that folks were uh, would have expected. And so they told me the only person that can save your career is the chief of staff of the Army. And I was going to be on a panel with the chief of staff of the Army uh, in a few weeks to do this thing. And so got on there. Long story short, I was kind of back on track. And then my command and then he sent me to go with his aide de camp. So his kind of guy who'd been his right hand person for a while. And normally, again, I was complete, so completely off track. I should not have, you know, my career should have been in the dumps. And this officer, you know, is probably the most inspiring leader that I've ever worked for. He took me in. He said, you know what I'm going to do? Not only am I going to bring you in the battalion and I'm going to like let you, you know, go through a couple of these. I'm going to give you the most problematic platoon because I'm going to give you the opportunity to show folks that even though you haven't had all of these experiences that the Army says you were supposed to have that you can still perform as a leader. And so I got to take that platoon that had more people that were on drugs and getting chaptered out of the army and lowest physical fitness score, lowest, you know, uh, you know, marksmanship scores and bring them up to the top platoon in the battalion. And then based off that, he was willing to send me to ranger school. I went to ranger school, 
uh, you know, and then was able to get through Ranger School, deploy with the Rangers to Afghanistan and really kind of set my career back on track. So I could have I could have probably given some other uh, examples, but for for a range of uh, making sure we're, we're saying optimistic and upbeat and not disclosing anything we shouldn't, we'll, we'll stay focused on, uh, you know, the, you know, someone taking a chance on me. Uh, when it would have been very easy to just kind of cast me aside, gave me that opportunity, and that's made all the difference for me in my career. And it's a, also it reminds me of, a, you know, luck. Yes. Luck at the end of the day is, I, I find that people, oh, you got lucky. And, and, and yes, you know, we all get lucky, right? And especially the ones that end up reaching the finish line, you know, they do get lucky. But luck at the end of the day is preparation meets opportunity which is what, you know, you are alluding to. You got to generate that. So I guess in your case, you know, you went to study at Oxford. You know, obviously you went through these deployments. But one thing that happened that uh, that was very interesting is when you came back to the U.S., you started to experience uh, what real estate, you know, was. You know, perhaps, you know, like you started dipping, you know, your feet in, in, in real estate, you know, perhaps, you know, buying, renting. So how did that all, you know, come about and, how and how does it develop into Patriot Family Homes, the business that you're running today? Yeah. So when I was in Afghanistan, uh, my wife travels for work. So we needed to figure out something to do with our house. Uh, and so it, we just, you know, it was kind of a last minute deployment as uh, folks who are, you know, uh, have been in the military can appreciate. And so we just literally had time. We didn't have time to bring in a tenant. We just finished renovating the house. We said, let's leave the furniture in it. We'll just list it on Airbnb and HomeAway. Maybe some people will need it. And realized, no surprise, there's a huge need for furnished short-term accommodations around military bases. People moving from one base to another, you know, like my wife and I moved eight times in eight years in the military. Um, people coming in to watch their soldiers graduate from airborne school or ranger school or basic training uh, wanted to be there together as a family. So took off. So then we came back. I moved my wife and I. I didn't want to give up on the revenue. As many entrepreneurs, this story will resonate. So I moved my wife and I into one bedroom of our three-bedroom house, started renting the other two bedrooms. Uh, I also bred our dog without telling her because I thought the dog was in the negative, you know, red on the balance sheet. Uh, and uh, But then we started buying more houses, flipping them, uh, turning those into short-term rentals. And, uh, you know, then moved from Fort Benning, which is there in Columbus, Georgia, to other military bases. COVID hit. First time I thought I was going to go bankrupt because how am I, you know, how do we manage, you know, this? We lost 90% of our reservations in the first week because uh, the Secretary of Defense put in a stop movement order. And, 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 and let, me, let me stop you right there because obviously, you know, COVID is, uh, is a big time uncertain uh, event. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, you had an advantage. You know, because you were, you know, serving the country for for so long, you know, in this this different deployments where you had a different exposure to uncertainty and to uncertain events. And I'm sure that served you well when dealing with, you know, events like this, you know, which is obviously not life threatening and is more, you know, towards business. But how do you think that being able to be with uncertainty during your years in the army? gave you an advantage to be able to tackle a situation like COVID? We huddled our entire team at the time, which was a very small, uh, very small group of uh, veterans and military spouses who were all working with us. And just what you said, you know, this is one of those times failure was not an option. You know, this was not a VC company at the time where we were kind of playing with other people's money. This was all my money at the time. And I was personally guaranteeing millions of dollars worth of loans. 
uh, and I didn't know how I was going to make the payments, right? Because our you know revenue stream had just dried up. Uh, so we all pulled together. We we uh, we were heavily focused around in Columbus, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. We started a Walking Dead, you know, get out of Atlanta while you still can uh, ad campaign. We uh, started calling insurance companies who needed to displace, you know, uh, put people in houses, uh, healthcare companies. So we started getting creative with what, what are the, all the different possible contractors, you know, who were in, you know, kind of critical industries, you know, and putting them up because they needed a place to stay when they were on the road doing jobs. And that then wound up being a huge opportunity for growth, right? Because before we just focused on the military traffic, but when we were forcibly deprived of that revenue stream, then we picked up all of these other revenue streams that actually allowed us to grow the company far more, you know, expand the company into other markets that were not military markets, start serving other guests, and ultimately, you know, in dramatically increase the pace of growth. And that would never have happened if not for COVID. Um, and it's like, it's the second time in my career where, you know, something uh, completely unexpected that looked like it was going to ruin us wound up being, you know, the kind of, you know, forcing function uh, that, you know, pushed us to create a new process or open up a new customer base. Uh, and again, that kind of goes back to the military of when rounds are inbound, uh, no one's, <laughs> you know, there's no sitting and, you know, you know, wallowing in self-pity in the corner. You got to do something. Now, in this case, you know, it sounds like you guys, you know, really turned, you know, around the corner there and uh, you came up, you, ca you came out of that, you know, even more powerful than, you know, the way that you entered it. Now, for you, I mean, you were alluding to it. You were really bootstrapping this entire thing. Uh, and, you know, it was quite a sizable operation uh, at that point. Now, you even touched on it, you know, on the fact that you have spouses uh, um, of, 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 of people that are serving. Now, how did that idea come about of, uh, hey, you know, like maybe, you know, like we could really ramp up the, the talent by also, you know, for a bigger purpose here and, and allowing, you know, these, these, these spouses to, to come in and, and make it happen with us? So when I uh, got my first, took out my first decent sized loan to go buy a portfolio of homes, literally the day after I closed, the army said, surprise, we need somebody to go fill a unit in Ukraine uh, to go train some of their uh, forces over in Ukraine. And so I thought, again, well, this is how I go bankrupt, because, you know, how do I manage this operationally intensive short term rental portfolio from shipping uh, from a shipping container in rural Ukraine? And uh, one of the guys I was deploying with, his uh, wife had been a West Point grad army officer and then had gotten out and was doing real estate. And he was like, look, let's see, let's let have Kate, you know, take over the portfolio. And so then Kate came in and opened up this whole amazing talent pool of military spouses who have completely kind of transformed. And it's this, you know, highly overqualified, underemployed, you know, talent base because they have to move all the time. And so we have military spouses, you know, working for us in Dubai. Uh, where their husbands deployed and all, you know, literally across the country. It's a kind of a nightmare from the HR standpoint because we have to file in all of these different states. Uh, but it was it, it's a, just a tremendous blessing. And military spouses are exactly the sort of savvy, you know, scrappy, uh, you know, folks that you want in a, in, in a startup. And so that was a great opportunity. And now Kate, who is that, you know, kind of first employee has grown and done basically every role in the company is now our chief growth officer. 
That's amazing. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. For Also for the people that are listening, you know, that are interested in the whole fundraising and, and transactional piece here. I mean, you were, you were talking about that you bootstrapped the operation for the, for the early years and for the early phases. Right now, how much capital have you guys raised to date between equity and debt? All blended, probably around four hundred million. And what is the why debt? You know, comes in the equation here. How do you guys, you know, work debt into the business, and how does that balance, you know, with the equity side? Yeah. So we have two different. We have a the operating company, right, which is what employs everybody and does all of the activity. For those of you in you know familiar with the real estate space often you'll have this opco propco structure. And then the propco owns the actual real estate because it is on, on one side, very capital intensive to buy the real estate. But because it's seen as a more secure asset, uh, it's very bankable, particularly in the single family rental context where we operate. So, you know, we raise mainly equity into the operating company. And then in the propco, we raise a blend of equity and debt. And in fact, more obviously more debt than, than equity, usually about twice or so, you know, two to three times as much debt as equity, depending on the deal and uh, and so forth. And so, you know, we've done everything on the debt side from small. And when we first started out, I literally was driving around in my truck uh, to local community banks, trying to find somebody to bankroll this, you know, kind of crazy idea from a military guy who was like, you know, I can manage these, you know, short-term rental properties all over the country and, you know, I just need you to give me loans. Uh, and then, you know, we would kind of flip them, pull equity out of them, you know, repeat. Uh, and then all the way up now, I can't disclose who the partners are, but we're the first player in our space to get kind of nine-figure, um, you know, style debt facilities uh, from, you know, national, uh, you know, household name uh, lenders. Uh, and then in between that, we work with some specialty lenders and regional banks. Uh, so that's that's on the kind of debt side. On the equity side, you know, we really, for the first, you know, two or three years, try to be very focused on kind of raising, you know, just, just you know, growing off the of cash flow and debt. 
but then in 2021, we raised, you know, around uh, kind of 10 million or so blended across Opco and Propco. And then in 2022, we raised another kind of, you know, 60 million dollars, you know, blended across Opco and Propco. Uh, so that's a little bit of kind of what the equity looks like. And typically when we partner with an equity partner on the Opco, what we'll do is we'll get a commitment that's about five to one of a Propco versus Opco, you know, because you need a, a equity in the in the Propco as well, right? So we'll say, you know, you give us $50 million in Propco funding and we'll let you invest $10 million in the operating company. And ultimately, as a whole, for the people that are listening to get it, how, how are you guys making money? We are fully vertically integrated. So our core business is obviously the rental income off of the property. So when someone comes and stays at our homes, you know, they pay us, you know, whether it's an insurance company, somebody traveling for vacation, whatever it might be, a large different use case there. But that rental income is the core. But unlike most companies in our space who have never made money and have always just had to, you know, raise more and more and more capital because they were burning so fast. And the reason is because their business models were predicated on essentially buying mom and pops or doing very expensive direct to consumer marketing. Whereas what we said is we want to build an operational machine that is one vertically integrated. So we have an acquisitions department, a renovation oversight department. We procure our own FF&E. We then sell the FF&E to the prop codes. We do the full service property management, guest services, engagement, legal, you know, the whole nine yards. So we are kind of soup to nuts, you know, uh, you know, capital allocator for, you know, institutional style investors. Uh, and then the second thing is, we want to focus on delivering, you know, great returns for those prop codes, because by delivering great returns for those prop codes, we're able to attract more and more capital. And then we get paid an acquisition fee, which is a, you know, we have a margin on that business. We get paid a renovation oversight fee. So we make money there. We, you know, candidly mark up the FF&E that we sell and we charge the shipping and delivery and install fees. So unlike all of our other competitors, that are paying sometimes eight, nine, 10, 15 times EBITDA to be able to acquire more contracts, we actually make money at every stage of growth and are very profitable in growth because we've looked at the growth machine as not a cost center, but a profit center. And we've tried to organize it in the kind of fee for service uh, structure in order to achieve that. So we make money in the growth phase and we make money on the kind of stable state. And talking about the capital, you know, again, to expand on that, I just wanted to really quickly, you know, get the listeners to understand how you guys are making money. But expanding and, and double clicking on the capital side of things, you know, as they say, what goes around comes around. Tell us about that car wreck that happened and how, you know, that led to you being introduced to one of your capital partners. Yeah, so we, I may have one of the most <laughs> kind of crazy, wild stories for uh, getting linked up with a capital partner. but. Uh, when I was in Oxford, uh, I used to, my wife and I uh, would like to, you know, another way to make money or, you know, they were not even necessarily make money, but just to have fun is we would go rent these castles and then we would have other people, you know, go on these trips that we would plan. And so we'd rented a, 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 a castle in France and had taken a bunch of friends over there from Oxford. And as we were coming back to the castle one evening, there was a kind of caravan of cars and the car in front of us pulled out and got T-boned by a... Uh, by a bus, rolled it multiple times. And one of uh, the girls in the car wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Uh, everybody in the car was injured, you know, somewhat. She was injured pretty badly. Um, you know, a lot of people froze, but I, you know, I guess for, 
growing up on a farm and the military background and everything else. So I, I jumped in, started pulling people out of the car, got her out of the car right before uh, it got really bad. Um, and I uh, was able to get her, you know, to a hospital. And um, and so I think she over-exaggerates that she, you know, the way she would tell the story is Joe pulled me out of a burning car and saved my life. Uh, but she then went on, was extremely successful, did a bunch of different things. We worked at the White House together. And after she left the White House, she took a job uh, in, uh, in, in Dallas with one of the family offices that ultimately provided our capital. And so, you know, she, one of the, their deal, uh, you know, kind of generators was asking about different opportunities. And she was like, oh, you should talk to my friend Joe, uh, and, uh, told that story. And so, um, you know, she's a very special, special friend and, uh, very grateful to her for, for helping us get the opportunity. And it's an interesting story that at the, at the closing dinner, that we love to kind of tell about how we got linked up. I mean, no kidding. I mean, they, people always talk about the importance on, of having warm introductions to investors. But my God, getting an introduction like that when someone is telling you, hey, I got introduced you to this guy that saved my life, pulled me, you know, in, out of a car in flames. And I mean, I, I would give you money too. You know, come on. I mean, that's unbelievable. Now, now let's 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 switch gears here. Let's let's go back to you know, now I want to talk about the company, the, the vision, because obviously the vision is something that you that you had to share with investors too. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision is fully realized for the company. What does that world look like? So the first thing I want to say is, I, you know, you know, entrepreneurs are talking to each other when they start a sentence. It's like, imagine you go to sleep tonight, right? <laughs> like, imagine you actually get your work done and can go to sleep tonight. That's that's perhaps the, the interesting. Uh, but uh, if I do, which I hope I do uh, tonight, um, you know, what we would love to see, uh, I, I'll frame it in, 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 in a couple senses. One, from a customer-facing view, our view is that the short terminal industry offers a phenomenal product. Uh, to guests who want larger homes, to be able to gather as a family, longer term stay, have a kitchen, all of these things. But it's very fragmented and in our view, kind of unprofessionalized across the space. So what we would like to do is help bring the sort of discipline and uh, you know, kind of quality expectations that you would experience from hotel brands uh, to the short term rental space. So people are getting the benefits of the being in a single family home with some of the confidence of quality that they would have in a hotel. Similar to that, you know, there are a lot of different use cases for why people need to stay in short-term rentals. So our new president and COO, we hired one of, you know, he uh, ran all of IHG's kind of brand and loyalty programs and ran um, a lot of their timeshare and stuff. And so what he's thinking, helping us think about is how do we create a multi-brand short-term rental, you know, you know, enterprise? So that, you know, you can have a brand that targets luxury stays and you can have a brand that targets economy stays or long term stays or, you know, unique stays and like glamping and, you know, and tree houses. And um, so how do you create, you know, one, you know, harness the efficiencies of kind of scale on the back end operations from accounting and cleaning and operations and all of that stuff, but then present a multi-branded product to customers so they know what they get they're getting when they book right do they they know are they you know am i traveling for for work with my colleagues in which case i maybe just want more of an economy style product or am i like taking this big vacation with my family that i've planned on for a long time where i want to make sure i've got a higher quality product and so 
that's 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 one piece of it on the kind of customer facing side. And then on the inside view, what is really important for us is to continue to build a strong uh, and scrappy culture that allows us to kind of, you know, bring in folks uh, who we say, you know, are grateful for for the opportunity to be a part of our team, and we're grateful to have them. And so we hire a lot of military spouses, as we talked about, hire a lot of veterans. Increasingly, we hire a lot of folks who are leaving prison or covering, you know, coming out of incarceration because we find they're great folks to work in our warehouses or do maintenance techs. And so, you know, putting together that team of kind of, you know, uh, of kind of almost scrappy misfits, but putting them in a great organizational culture is something that we're really, you know, excited about. And then, of course, ultimately, you know, we'd love to be the largest, you know, vertically integrated short-term, uh, short-term rental operator, you know, in the country and then ultimately in the world. I love that. Now, imagine we go back to the past. So we've been talking about the future. Now we go now we go to the past, but we do it with a lens of reflection. Let's say I put you to a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where, you know, you you were thinking about doing something of your own. And let's say you had the opportunity of giving that younger Joe one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Invest in accounting resources sooner. <laughs> that may sound super practical and maybe not entirely inspiring, but you know, one thing that delayed our fundraising as long as it did was because in the course of bootstrapping, and it was, you know, in my view, kind of, you know, my company, my, you know, I wasn't as worried about investing in accounting resources. And if it was, you know, in this bucket or that account or whatever, not that big a deal. But then when we started going out and trying to recruit institutional style capital, you know, it was difficult for us to get them comf- comfortable with, you know, with our accounting. And we had to invest and we had to then spend a lot more on the backside to get ourselves cleaned up. So that's not super inspiring, but I would have said, you know, my cheapskate tendencies were probably right in most respects, but I maybe should have been a little less cheap on accounting. I love that. So, Joe, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? They can just go to uh, www.patriotfamilyhomes.com. So it's patriotfamilyhomes.com. Uh, you're also welcome to shoot me an email at my personal email, which is just joe, uh, J-O-E, at patriotfamilyhomes.com. Amazing. Easy enough. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.